Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. In this episode of the podcast, Giovanni's guest today is Alex McLean, partner at TVM Capital Life Science. In this episode, Giovanni and Alex discuss Alex's story of becoming a venture capital partner, what her group looks for in an investment, how much they invest and when, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Alex McLean. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. This is MedTech Money, and we were going to get into who you are, where you came from, where you are now, and obviously a little bit more about later stage investing from a VC's perspective. But before we get in there, I want to set some context for the listeners out there and then start with a couple open-ended questions that I love your opinion or perspective on. So why we're here. I've talked to thousands of medtech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And, and what I've personally discovered is that there's no silver bullet or specific formula as to how people raise or invest capital in medtech. And so my goal here is to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs, investors like yourself, in order to help those who can benefit from this information and generations of professionals, of entrepreneurs and investors to come. So what I imagine this audience being is a mixture of experts and novices, people who have been there before and people who are just beginning. And what I want to do is extract your stories, your insights, your advice to share with what I imagine the first time founder or CEO and has no clue what lies ahead of them on the journey of raising capital in the med tech industry. And so I thought the best place of starting would be learning from experienced professionals like yourself. Great. And happy the reason why, go ahead. I said, happy to be here. I'm very happy to have you. Trust me. Um, so the reason why I have you here, Alex, is um, you bring a unique perspective. And once again, we're going to get into the background of where you came from and, and now here at TVM Capital, spoiler alert on, on the company. Um, but I want this to be a conversation about later stage investors. And what does that mean for the industry? What are the types of entrepreneurs that reach out to you, the types of investors that you uh, invest into, I should say companies that you invest into, and then also the differences of the ones that you don't and why. So I want to demystify that. But before we get into that, here are my two opening questions that I'd love to hear your perspective on. So the first one, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? And am I forgetting anything? Um, well, people definitely are, um, the key aspect of a medtech startup, um, much more so than the actual product. Um, so, so definitely people. And as far as uh, you know, the finances, um, 
those are critical at a certain stage. Um, but I think early on, you know, it's the people and the vision and the connection with the customer, which is key. I think the financial aspects come in a little bit later. Um, you know, I think the, the old adage of lean and mean, right, I, I think can be very helpful for, for entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that's borne out over the COVID period that we just uh, experienced and probably are still experiencing to a certain degree. Um, for companies in this early stage that were maybe ready for the next financing, this, this sort of period, this quieter period, gave them additional time to regroup uh, really think deep and hard about their device, the positioning, value proposition, uh, the type of financing that they actually would need, the way they're going to hit the market commercially. Um, so I, I saw that um, as somewhat, it was challenging for these companies, but in the end, um, if they made it through, I think they made it through much better. I think they have a tighter a tighter story. Um, and, and then I think that will be much easier to get financing for. So um, instead of the rush, 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 COVID, COVID uh, gave people a necessary break. <laughs> Thank you for that. And then my, my second question is, we're gonna jump into your journey here soon to give a little bit more context, but throughout your career and now landing where you are now, if you knew what you know about now, about being a med tech investor mm-hmm. and entrepreneur in the space, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? What would you do differently? What would you give counsel on to those that are listening, building a career that's led somewhat similar to where you are now? Um, I, I think for the most part, I would have done what I did. Um, I was somewhat fortunate in that I was able to, um, you know, have a long training period as a surgical uh, resident, do multiple fellowships, uh, do uh, research. Um, and then I you know, was able to move into different industries, into pharma, and then um, into a startup and into med tech, and then back into pharma and get my MBA. So I, I've just been lucky that I've been able to make these decisions. And so I think um, as now as a, a VC investor, um, all of these, um, all of these jobs and skill sets and people that I met just feed into what I do now. And I think it's, um, it, it's given me a great foundation for this, this position. Um, but it was a long, it was a long road, a very long road. Um, there are faster ways to do it. Um, and there's more traditional ways to do it. Um, for example, you can, um, you know, sort of get into whatever your under, whatever your degree or your education happens to be. Uh, you can go the big company route uh, and then move into a startup and prove yourself in a startup, and then you know maybe flip over the VC side. Um, you can also uh, do what some people have done, which is a Kaufman Fellowship, um, which is a, a VC particular training period. Uh, I think it's a two-year program. You have to apply for it. You have to be at a VC firm at that time, but it provides additional uh, foundational education and experience. So then you can really get yourself into a, a general partnership position at a VC. Um, and then there's the other route, uh, which a lot of people with a medical background like mine uh, opt to do, 
which is if they're going to leave medicine and move into sort of industry, a fair number of them will move over into a consulting role initially. So ideally, they try to try to get a, uh, a pretty well-known consulting firm, you know, Bain, BCG, McKinsey, um, what have you, in that sort of realm where they get a very solid um, education in how to look at data and how to storytell from that data and how to uncover um, you know, uh, problems and, and then develop solutions. So I think that education is a great education for people uh, in VC. Um, so I think there's, you know, the, the, those are the more traditional routes, I think from the startup world to from sort of the consulting world. Um, I took a, uh, a much more, uh, a longer road uh, that probably involved many different aspects um, than, than some other people. So thank you for that. And then without further ado, putting some context to that journey that you just mentioned in some sure. color, who is Alex McLean? Where did you start <laughs> out? And then where did you land up now? And when you get there, let's pause there and we'll flush out where you are now. Um, so I am, uh, I was born in Canada, uh, in Toronto to a, uh, a family where my dad, um, started his uh, own company and, and grew it. It was a printing company. And, and then he was at the era where, uh, you know, new technology was being introduced and he had to make those fundamental decisions. Do I embrace new technology and, and take that risk um, and put my money towards that? And he did. So he was one of the first companies in, in Canada that had certain types they called web-based presses. Um, and then he also brought in the whole graphic design element to the printing business. So he brought in Macintosh computers very, very early on the first iterations, essentially. Um, so growing up with that sort of uh, entrepreneurial uh, risk-taking uh, perspective uh, was very fruitful for me. Um, and I think I've kept, I, I, I live with that on a daily basis, um, that perspective. Um, uh, in addition, one of the other things that was key about growing up in this environment was um, that my um, parents were pretty social. Uh, they, they got along well with people. Uh, my dad uh, just had one of the lowest turnover rates at a company that I've ever seen. He treated his employees uh, with amazing respect. He uh, had an employee share plan before that even was well known anywhere. Um, so it was just... Uh, a great sort of uh, environment to, to grow up in and understand and talk about it around the, the dining room table. And of course, I spent many summers um, as a teenager uh, working at his company in various roles. <laughs> so so that, was a, that was a great experience. And the, at the end of the summer, I got to go uh, shopping and buy some nice uh, fall clothing. That was, <laughs> that was the payout. And then, uh, yeah, of course, save some for, for future uh, uses. Um, so growing up in that environment, um, I, uh, I, I had lots of opportunities. My parents uh, were very generous with, uh, with opportunities, whether that was travel, sports, education. So I, I, was, I was very fortunate to experience a lot of uh, things. I went to a fantastic school, still uh, high school and, and, and lower school, and uh, still very good friends with, with most of my classmates and were a very close and, and tightly knit group. Um, I, I in school, I, I tended to gravitate mostly to, uh, to science. Um, so I spent, uh, those were kind of my strengths was the math and physics and biology and so forth. Um, so with that background, the, 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 the scientific background, 
and then you know the entrepreneurial um, exposure. Um, I uh, went to McGill um, in Montreal and, uh, and did a uh, science degree, bachelor's of science in physiology um, with a minor in history and philosophy of science. Um, and you may say that's maybe a bit of a strange combination. Um, and generally the history and philosophy of science is often the, the art students are the ones that are taking that. But um, I, I had a strong belief that I didn't want to be, or a strong ambition that I, I didn't want to be a scientist who could not communicate. Um, and I had encountered many of those in, in, my, in the lectures where we fall asleep because the stories and the, the way they presented the data was incredibly mind numbing. Um, so I wanted to be able to communicate. I wanted to be able to write properly, um, tell stories. And, and, and you know, to do that, I thought, let's, let's do a, a minor in a arts uh, subject. So that's when I picked up uh, history and philosophy of science. Um, to bring in the influence of, of my, my parents again and the, the family company, um, I also started a magazine at McGill um, called The Pillar, which... Uh, it was a arts and science uh, magazine where we showcased it, that showcased the talents around the campus in the form of, of, of art, uh, in the form of interviews, in the form of uh, literature, poetry, uh, and, and, and stories um, and news articles. So this was a magazine that we started uh, in my second year, and it actually continued to exist for about 15 years, um, so after I left. And uh, it was a, a great experience. I think it came out quarterly, if I remember correctly. Uh, so that there, I was sort of, you know, melding the the um, the science part, the will, the need to be able to, you know, tell stories, uh, write properly, speak well, and uh, and also the um, the ability to be somewhat entrepreneurial and, and start this magazine. Um, so after that, I, uh, I, I loved the history and philosophy of science uh, so much, and I really enjoyed learning more about it. So I hopped over to uh, Cambridge uh, University in England and did a master's program there, which was just fantastic exposure to the different educational system in England and the responsibility for self-learning that they put on the students. Uh, there's no hand-holding there. Uh, it's it's up to you. Um, so it was a very engaging uh, program. Um, I had to do a lot of research, a lot of writing, um, running through the library, pulling books out, uh, and you know that that sort of thing doesn't really exist anymore. You're all online, so it was uh, it was it was hard work, um, but just a fantastic experience. Uh, met people from all over the world, still friends with a fair number of them and was able to travel, uh, take advantage and travel in Europe also. Um, so that was fantastic. Uh, after that, I came back to Canada and I was not sure exactly what my next step was. Um, I had been thinking about medicine, but I'd also been thinking about um, scientific sort of uh, publications even more contemporary type of, of publications, uh, like magazines in general, whether I would go down the sort of journalist um, publisher type uh, route or whether I would do medicine um, with the scientific background. So I, uh, I spent about, I think it was about a year and a half uh, at the Canadian Cancer Society in the national office uh, working for, uh, I, his role might've been chief medical officer or something akin to that a very prominent Canadian uh, physician named Dr. Jack Laidlaw, 
and he had been dean of McMaster Medical School and was heavily involved in the, the Toronto ecosystem in, in research and in you know, clinical care of patients. So uh, he was just a fantastic role model. I think that's one of the themes uh, throughout my, my career is when I had a, uh, I always looked for great role models. And when I found one, I, I, really, I really immersed myself in their, uh, in their head and, and tried to really get as much as I could from their, their wisdom. Um, so he was a fantastic uh, mentor. Um, and uh, with, with that, I, I ended up applying for medical school um, and went to Columbia in New York. Um, I always had a love of New York and I thought this is a great opportunity to be able to, uh, to, to mix the two, New York and, and medical education. So um, off to Columbia, I went. And in fact, we just had our 25th uh, uh, anniversary of uh, graduation from Columbia. So um, fantastic school, diverse group of people, very, very talented. Um, a lot of people who were, you know, artists, people who were amazing athletes uh, and people who were great uh, researchers and social people. And uh, we had a very close, very close class. Uh, so that was a fantastic experience. And I think what I learned there was how important storytelling was. And so it really brought all my early on how I wanted to, you know, get better at writing, get better at speaking, get better at telling stories. In medicine, the story is the key. And it's always about letting the patient tell the story, right? And if the patient tells the story, then hopefully you're going to be able to glean those important, um, you know, um, those important facts that are unveiled, those um, important um, symptoms and, and signs, and then you can sort of put your differential diagnosis together. But it's all about the story. And, and then once, once I, uh, you know, really understood that, then you understand how important the story is when you're transmitting information to your colleagues. So if you're bringing in a consult, consult to look at a patient, you need to be able to transmit that story to the consultant, right? So, so they are interested in trying to figure it out. They, um, uh, are, they don't get frustrated by just a, a slew of facts, but they actually get the story. Um, and, and so that's a, a, something that Columbia spent a lot of time making sure that we could tell a patient's story. And this is actually very important, as everyone knows in med tech, about understanding what is the customer's need, right? What's the unmet need? What's the story? And, and, and so that's where that theme, once again, is very prominent. Um, I think it's also very prominent in VC too. Uh, when we hear from entrepreneurs, I really look forward to hearing the story. So not just you know, a slide on this, a slide on that, and then I have to sit there and try and put it together, try to figure it out. I, I really think if the entrepreneur can tell the story and, and then there's something real there. So it's all about being able to tell the story. Um, so that's why medicine, I think, just brought that all to uh, an apex and it's just been very fundamental ever since. Um, and then I, uh, I uh, after Columbia, I did general surgery residency at uh, NYU, which was a very challenging program as uh, anyone in the surgical world knows. Uh, we also worked at Bellevue Hospital, great hospital, a uh, lot of... Uh, 
very uh, ill individuals that come into to Bellevue, unfortunately, uh, with not having had optimized care prior, prior to presenting with some pretty severe disease. So that was balanced with the experience at the VA hospital, which NYU also had. We also had a couple of community hospitals and then of course the, um, the academic hospital. And uh, so it was a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, set of years. Um, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know here, people hear you know, horror stories about surgical residency, especially back then when there was no limit to how many hours we could work. Um, but I, I actually, I just loved it. I think I found it challenging. Um, every day I was learning something new, um, of course, making mistakes along the way. So you also learn that uh, you, it's okay to make mistakes as long as you can uh, learn from these and, and you know, share, share the stories with colleagues so they can hopefully not make that same mistake. Um, so after, uh, after N or during NYU, I then went back to uh, University of Toronto, uh, which was a very common thing to do to take a couple of years during um, residency program and, and do research. So I went back to Toronto and did um, some research, um, bench research in uh, lung transplant uh, related issues. Um, went back to NYU, finished that off. And my uh, choice of uh, what I was going to do with my surgical education, I landed in a very challenging area, which is uh, trauma and critical care. So uh, off to Miami to do trauma and critical care. And uh, I think one of the reasons I picked trauma and critical care as opposed to just sticking to, um, you know, thoracic surgery or, or um, surgical oncology, or what have you, is that trauma and critical care involved first surgical operations all over the body um, with all different types of organs and systems. And then it also combined medicine. So critical care, I really had to still, you know, have my foot in, in medicine. Um, and so it was uh, being a really good generalist, um, but also then being a very good specialist in certain aspects of, of trauma and critical care. And so I, uh, I picked up uh, a love of the vascular aspects of, of trauma. And uh, then after that fellowship, I went to Hopkins to do a, a fellowship in vascular surgery. And this was at the period where there was a lot of innovation occurring in, in vascular surgery. Uh, the first aortic endographs were being um, used. We were you know, changing from our approach of open surgical management of aortic aneurysms to uh, endograph uh, procedures. And so this was a really great introduction to the med tech world. Um, that's when I really started to think about med tech. I fortunately um, had spent some time working with a, a fantastic um, uh, vascular interventionalist who's uh, well-known around the world for, for innovation and so forth, Dr. Barry Katzen um, in, in Florida. And so I did some research with him. And so learning about the adoption of new technology from his perspective, the studies they had to do to prove that they were safe and effective, the training that went involved that was involved in, in trying to you know, have people move from the open procedures to adopt these, these uh, procedures that were much more beneficial for the patients from a, from a safety and recovery um, aspect. And then watching how the devices um, got better over time as problems were, were dis uh, discovered, but uh, they went back to the companies and the companies, you know, improved the, improved the devices. So that was a firsthand um, view of, of how medical technology evolves and gets better for the patients. Um, 
So after uh, Hopkins, I then practiced for a couple of years in New York in all of these things, in, in vascular, uh, critical care, acute surgical trauma, acute surgical problems, and then some elective procedures. So you can imagine, uh, we had beepers at the time still, and my beeper did not stop going off. It just, it was nonstop. So uh, <laughs> even, even if I wasn't on call. So uh, I, uh, I, I did enjoy that, but my learning curve was actually a little flatter um, than what I had had during residency and uh, in fellowships. And I had some colleagues that had already ventured out to industry from Columbia, my med school colleagues, and a number of them were at Merck. And so I started having conversations about with them about, you know, I, maybe I want to meld my, my medical and my scientific background with my father and my mom's entrepreneurial spirit and business sense and see where that takes me. Um, so the, I looked at different things at that stage. I looked at uh, industry, but for some reason, I didn't really look at med tech. I looked mainly at, at Merck um, and pharma because I had that connection and I was in New York City and Merck, of course, is in New Jersey. So it was very accessible. Um, I also looked at consulting. And then I reached out to uh, my uh, venture capitalist uh, colleague, who's actually now my boss at TVM, and he was based in Toronto. And we, um, I started learning about VC from his perspective, and he's basically followed my career ever since I left over uh, to industry and watched me sort of pick up other skills, um, whether it's at Merck, um, where I did uh, clinical development in cardiovascular mainly in phase 2A type studies. Uh, and then I moved into device um, at Covidian where I had a fantastic experience initially, uh, mainly as a medical director, but then spending a lot of time with my business development colleagues uh, and in then eventually uh, Covidian's uh, venture arm and strategy arm and learning a lot more about how they make assessments of, of new technologies and bringing businesses under the uh, umbrella of uh, something like Covidian. Um, and as you know, <clears throat> Covidian was incredibly um, aggressive in acquiring new companies and investing in companies. So that was just a fantastic uh, learning experience. And so I kind of saw my career transitioning from more of the traditional medical aspect into more of the business aspect. And to facilitate that, I, I got my MBA while I was there. Um, and this enabled my next step, which was what a, a, at a, uh, a young company called Plasma Surgical down in Atlanta, where I took on more of a marketing role and was VP of market development there and, uh, and used skills I, I had um, got at, at Covidian. But also um, while I was at Covidian, we went to uh, Stanford to, to, um, for a couple of days to have a mini biodesign um, course. And, and that was really influential. So that really brought back the whole importance of the story. It's always the story, whether it's the story of a device, unmet need, patient, a company, it's, it's about getting that story right. And uh, so I brought those, uh, those skills to the, the startup and we tried to reposition the device that they had at the time. Um, and then after that, that's when I uh, moved into uh, much more of a, a pharma role um, where my goal was to get into business development and licensing. So I was still trying to further that assessment of new ideas, um, which I had, you know, started to have a good bite at, at Covidian, uh, but this time into the pharma world. Um, so I uh, was at um, 
in, in pharma, uh, learning, uh, doing more traditional medical affairs, but then spent a lot of time working with the deal teams. We're trying to acquire a number of, of companies and grow the business uh, into different uh, therapeutic areas. And so eventually I moved into a business development role there and then became the head of business development and licensing. And uh, that was a fantastic experience. And so my uh, VC a uh, colleague um, had moved into TVM Capital and been following my career. And uh, by this point, you know, I think uh, my skill sets that I had were aligned with TVM's strategic investment goals. And, uh, and so I was lucky that they, they finished raising a fund last June of about $500 million. And this was time to, to come on board and help them deploy the capital into some, some good investments. That's a long story. <laughs> no, no, there's so clearly won the underachiever award throughout your career and, and how you built that up. I mean, that, that was clearly a fascinating story. So I, I didn't know a lot of that. And I know that we've known each other for a while now. So that's been a very cool background to fill in. Um, and also that theme that you had been telling us about the storytelling aspect it certainly came out quite well. So if we can just quickly pivot then to storytelling about who TVM Capital is. And, and, and what I mean by that, I want to start taking it from that education perspective of where do they fall on the line of investors of are they early stage, are they late stage? Is there a minimum ticket? What type of technologies do they invest in? Um, and then do they do all of life science and how much of it is med tech? So if you can give a really holistic pitch of TVM and then we can break it in after that. Yeah, sure. So TVM is an international VC firm. Um, based out of Munich and Montreal, but we have other key personnel uh, around the world. Um, for example, I'm in, I'm in New York City. Uh, one of my other colleagues is in uh, Brussels. He's a medical oncologist. And you'll learn soon why that's important to have that sort of person on our team. But uh, we are led by uh, three partners, three owners, um, and two of those are in Munich and one is in Montreal. And the Montreal individual is the one who was sort of my, my key connection for, for the latter part of my career. Um, so TVM uh, has a, a very um, solid and well-defined investment strategy. TVM's team uh, includes uh, people who have diverse backgrounds in healthcare and investing. Um, the managing partners have a long history in, in VC and being very successful. Uh, and uh, two, they are PhDs. Um, the, uh, myself, I'm an MD. We have uh, our, my colleague uh, who's a medical oncologist. He's an MD. Our chief medical officer is an MD with a background in internal medicine and tropical medicine. And then we have a, another colleague, a couple of colleagues who are PhDs. Uh, in finance, but also with uh, great uh, science backgrounds. Um, and we have another uh, set of associates who have depth in uh, life science business, but also life science preclinical, especially on the therapeutic side. So that's our, that's our team, um, very deep into uh, the science and the medicine. And so that enables us to make investments in both therapeutics and devices. Um, so the, the strategy is that we invest, you know, approximately 50% of the fund in early stage therapeutics. So these are early stage assets um, in biotech, usually biopharma. And we, we spin these out into single asset uh, companies. 
and uh, help conduct, help fund the funding, the development through to uh, proof of concept. So usually phase two A data, um, and then you know hopefully a transaction is is done at that stage, and a bigger pharma company takes it through the more expensive uh, phase two B and phase three trials. Uh, so that is the early stage investment, and the later stage investment uh, goes across healthcare. So it's not simply therapeutics. We look at devices, diagnostics, uh, health IT, digital health. We look at different business models, whether it's a, a SaaS business model, DTC business model, or B, B2B business model, um, or the traditional, um, you know, direct to, uh, to the hospitals or, or, or to the physician practices. Um, so we're pretty much agnostic of the type of, of business model. Uh, we, in the device realm, which probably forms a, one of the largest parts of our later stage investment strategy, we look for companies um, that are require funds to accelerate commercialization. So we look for companies that have regulatory approval, um, either in Europe or FTA, and have some very early um, commercial experience. So this helps our due diligence. We can reach out to customers and understand you know, how they're viewing the, the product and the positioning. And then uh, we have a good understanding of the use of proceeds with our investment. In the other areas, um, diagnostics, um, digital health and so forth, we also ideally look for things that have approval or are on the market. In the, in the therapeutic aspect um, of the later stage, we look for companies that have um, at least one asset entering their pivotal trial. So out of the later stage, most of our opportunities um, that we see now are in device. Um, and um, I can get a little bit more into sort of the types of companies that, that we look at and the types of devices if you want. Yeah, would love that. And then also just in, in general, and we'll get more into the mechanics of it, but like ticket size and sure. you know, some of the requirements and is there a geographic limitation? Are you investing in something in Indonesia, just like you would in Munich or Toronto or California or talk about that kind of stuff? Yeah. So um, geographically, most of the, the companies can come from any geography, but we do have that filter of, of regulatory approval, either Europe, CE Mark or, or FDA. So uh, we're agnostic to where the company comes from, but as far as the commercial effort, we're looking for that in, in Europe and or the US mainly. Um, and of course, Canada uh, is, is you know, often, uh, often the commercialization occurs uh, at the same time the US one is occurring. Um, so that's uh, the geography, the ticket size. Uh, we, because of the, the size of our fund, we look to put in a uh, minimum of 10 million and up to 20 million into these companies with, of course, some cash on reserve for future rounds if need be. Um, we are pretty much uh, agnostic to the type of device um, and uh, the location of the team. Um, so that goes back to, of course, ge geographically, the team can be uh, you know, in Europe or Asia or Canada or the US. Um, we, it, 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 the, our stage of investment is really about commercialization. So for me, I, I really enjoy this because this brings me back to sort of the looking at the products um, that the, for M&A at Covidian that we were looking at, 
Um, usually these products uh, were on the market or about to be on the market. So they were the later stage products for the most part for the M&A. So that brings me back to those sort of commercial assessments we did at that time and how we uncovered whether you know, this was going to really grow and be a really great company or device. So I get to use those skills. Um, so the, the um, types of companies in the, in the med tech uh, industry that we, we look at are really diverse across the board. Um, you know, one day it could be orthopedic, the next day it could be um, cardiac, um, it could be thoracic, so just a, across the board. And, and that's a, a great experience. And, and I get to leverage, you know, some of uh, the key advisors that, that I've met during my, my surgical journey and my training journey and company journey. So um, it's, it's a real pleasure to be able to, uh, you know, get their opinions on some of these, these devices across the board uh, and leverage, leverage that network, um, which is really key to making good investments. Um, for us, one of the earliest things we do, and I don't think this is unusual, but we really get to know who's the customer and we speak with the customers very early on. And I kind of put the responses into three buckets. Um, you know, ideally we're looking for a wow. Even if it's a, co a company KOL, we're still looking for that incredible wow. You know, this thing is just so meaningful. It's really impacting how I do things. It's impacting um, the patient. Uh, that's really the first thing. If it's in the bucket of, well, you know, it's a nice to have. Um, it's kind of hard to get it into our hospital system. Those ones are less appealing to us, of course. And then there's that other bucket of, you know, who thought about this? Who's funding this? Why does this even exist, right? So we really make that assessment early on with the KOLs and with our advisor, with our clinicians that we speak to, which bucket does this, is this in? And then we start understanding the hurdles for further adoption. Are these surmountable? Will our investment funds go to, you know, eliminating these hurdles or allowing us to, to leap over them. So whether it's a reimbursement, um, perhaps the device needs a few tweaks. There's a few iterations that need to occur. Um, uh, there's key people that they need to hire that they don't have on board right now. So those sort of hurdles, um, then we map out, you know, the, the time frame for those. How, how long is this going to take us to be able to get over those hurdles, right? So we can get to a commercially successful company um, that will be able to then have a great exit. And, and that's really the mapping out. Um, what helps all of this along, along the process is working with a great team. So if, we're, if the management team uh, is, is really the next thing, it, we, or actually it's probably the first thing, honestly. So the management team and then sort of the, the market um, response to the, the product. Um, but the management team, can they tell the story? Are they easy to work with? You know, are they responsive? Um, do we have really good, transparent, authentic phone calls with them? Um, do we, you know, do we feel that, that we can trust our investment funds to their vision and their ability to execute? Those are kind of the softer things, uh, which probably come with a lot of experience. And I look to the managing partners really to help um, flush out a lot of that because they've been there, done that, um, seen the successful ones and, and seen the unsuccessful ones too. So I think they have a, a good uh, intuitive sense about that. 
Um, so those are the real key things. And then after that, we, we get very deep into the business model. Uh, so we, of course, have uh, financial people in our organization, and we, we go very deep into the assumptions around the business model. We look at the P&L and really understand why is this number this number? Why is it not this one? And, and how does it progress over time? And does that make sense? And can we buy into this? Uh, because ultimately, that's what we need to do. We need to be able to buy into that model. Um, so we, uh, we love to see when people present their P&Ls that they have the assumptions there. Um, all of them have a hockey stick element to them, of course, right? They're entrepreneurs. They, they see their company just taking off and, and that's great. But we like to see cases around that. So seeing a down, a down case or an upside case, um, just so we can understand really the confidence interval, right? Around where the business is gonna go. Um, you, as an investor, I, you know, you, you don't want to have a lot of surprises in this kind of late stage investment thesis, because this is balancing our very risky, um, but potentially very uh, exciting early stage investments, right, in biotech. So um, we look for um, just really good transparency uh, and honesty around the business and the numbers and, and the hurdles. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, we bring that to our group. We, uh, talk about it, have uh, multiple presentations, and then decide on, on putting forth a term sheet. And then comes the fun stuff, right? The negotiation of the term sheet and the legal documents. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> I wanted to ask a, a series of questions and spend the rest of the time on that one. And it's gonna be a, a series of questions that's gonna throw into one major idea that you could speak to. So sure, sure. first I wanted to demystify or clarify this concept that we hear a lot in MedTech about how investors we see them consistently going later stage and later stage and leaving that area yeah. of early stage yeah. investment open. And, and there's a reason for that. I don't have all of them, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. So that's part one of the question. And, and maybe is it because there's more acquirers in pharma versus the few in med tech and it's a riskier business, or they're taking longer because of the FDA and their strategy, and it's taking much more capital to invest. Um, or is it the fact that the mechanics of, like you mentioned, you raise a $500 million fund, you have to be able to deploy that and get an ROI that makes sense back versus a $20 million fund who might go earlier stage. So I, I want to demystify why we are hearing more about med tech investors going later stage. Um, secondly, the general concept of, you mentioned a lot of what you look at and when you're assessing companies at a later stage investment, what are some of the major differences in terms of assessments coming from an early stage VC versus a later stage VC. And then the last thing, just to tie this in, is what makes a good board member? Okay. Um, so let's start with the, which one do you want me to start with first? Yeah, the, the first one about how MedTech is moving downstream in terms of investors. Yeah, well, in our, it's hard for me to speak to all investors in, in MedTech, but in our particular case, it's, it's because we are a um, diverse life sciences fund and um, just the, the biotech um, assets to, to, to get those in our sort of model, we usually have to go earlier. That's just the nature of it. It's very competitive. 
um, to get these assets and to spin them out. So we need to go earlier. Um, it's, you know, it's rare to see transactions in sort of the phase one um, point. There's these key time points, milestones during development and pharma when these, when these transactions usually occur, right? Um, so we, we are forced to go early because of that. And, um, and with the, the later stage, that's really to balance the risk of the earliest stage. So that's why we're going later in MedTech. But in addition, um, it's always been said that, you know, for MedTech, from an engineering perspective, it's not, um, it's a little more straightforward taking something from early stage med tech through to, um, through to uh, approval, right? And the amount of funds required to take that device from early stage through to approval is substantially smaller than the funds to take a biotech asset through to approval, right? And the risk profile of uh, the device is um, very much on the commercialization. Whereas the risk profile, the higher risk profile for biotech is very much on the development, right? And um, so we actually, if you think about it, we're actually taking a fair amount of risk because we are going at the commercial stage, right? Whereas the development stage for device is a little more straightforward, you know? Um, comparative to, to, to biotech. Um, that's, and understanding the, if you can get to approval in biotech, um, you've hopefully done your commercial assessments properly, right? So you have a pretty good idea of, of how this is going to be sold, right? You understand it's, it's a little more straightforward, whereas the, the med tech commercial model um, is uh, a little more, um, uh, challenging and sometimes more difficult to predict, especially introducing disruptive, you know, devices into the market, right? You go back to the, the robot, how long did that take to really get adopted? It actually took a fair amount of time. Laparoscopic surgery, same thing, right? Took actually a long time. Aortic endographs took a long time. So there actually, um, there is a fair amount of risk uh, in, in the med tech commercialization. It's just in our case, we want to live with those companies for a certain period of time because we have to return money to our fund within a certain period of time, right? So if we were gonna go very early and then all the way through to exit, um, that could be a time period that's beyond the life of our fund. Mm. And that's kind of what it comes down to. We, we, we have a window um, that we try to, uh, we aim for, for exits both the biotech and both for, and, and for the med tech. And uh, that's what drives, we take that window and that's what drives sort of our investment period. So um, there are perhaps some other VCs who, who can live with that company for a much longer period of time. But in, in our um, you know, experience and, and just with our, our strategy for our fund, it's a certain number of years that we want to be injecting capital into the company in order to get it through to a good exit. And that period of time doesn't allow us to go earlier. Um, I think exiting devices on approval can happen. And we've seen that recently with some of the cardiac devices, right? But a lot of the other devices, uh, the m &A occurs from a strategic point of view. Once it's been proven out and it will be accretive to their, uh, to their financial model. 
So then when you talked about only having a certain window of time, so like, what about these PMA companies? And I know that you were alluding to some of it just now, but you know, when you're developing the next heart valve or the next class three cardiac implantable device, right. And you're looking and you're just starting out and you need that early stage funding. um, You know, if, if it's a smaller fund that can afford to give you one or 2 million or 3 million just to start out with on your series a, for example, do they have the same metrics as someone like TVM and that later stage, or is it all the same, maybe with this classic traditional VC of a 10 year window. And, and, and if you jump into a, a fund that's already made a couple investments in three years into their fund, how does that mechanics and time against money work? Yeah. So I don't have the data or the evidence to support what I'm about to say, but my, my thoughts are, is that the, the people who are investing um, are concentrating on the early stage Medtech are the ones who understand which early stage technologies can exit at an earlier time point than some of the other ones in Medtech, right? So the cardiac, the orthopedic, those ones um, often, I think you, you can get an earlier exit with those. So those are easier probably to invest in. The ones that are in other therapeutic areas, and you guys probably know this because you're you're you know do a lot of work um, with with getting the talent onto some of these companies. Um, these ones uh, are the ones that have a bit more challenge because they they may their road to adoption um, is going to be perhaps a little bit longer. Uh, in addition, they may not be in that hyper competitive cardiac valve, uh, vascular orthopedic space, right? And I think when you're in those very competitive spaces, um, that's when the M&A will occur a little bit earlier. Okay. And, and so then I think you touch base on it, unless you want to polish anything off on, on the dichotomy between an early stage investor versus a late stage investor, if you have any more thoughts on that, and if not, then we'll roll into this concept of good money versus bad money. What makes a good board member? And it's not just capital that you're giving, but you should be taking more than simply capital if you're an entrepreneur from your investors um, as value adds, experience, networks, et cetera. So talk about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, from a, from a board perspective, I think it depends on, uh, where the device is in its, um, where the company is in its, its life story. Um, so if it's early on, they're probably looking for different types of board members than later stage, right? Uh, that's the same with CEOs, right? Often those change over time, the type of CEO you need early on versus, versus later. So um, from a, a board perspective, I think it's, it's always about, you know, the value add, the network, the knowledge, uh, that they can bring to the table to really ask the smart questions, right? And look at the data and, and understand the data that you're looking at from a board perspective. I think that is absolutely critical. Um, to have a pure financial advisor on the board um, may be helpful for the later stage, right? When you're, when you're looking at per, perhaps IPO, you're looking at, at the M&A, that can be helpful. But I think um, for the device early on, um, you need to have people who understand the commercial landscape very well, um, understand commercialization, um, regulatory, and so forth. So, so that is, you know, absolutely critical. Whereas the later stage um, board members um, can be a little bit more, um, I think, diverse. Okay. And um, I, I think just to wrap up, and my last question here is, 
where do you see with the year that we had in 2020 and now here we are in 2021, where's all this going with this capital flow? I mean, we, we broke a massive record last year. We're doing very well this year. Um, a little bit, I think, behind possibly the trajectory of last year, this year, but where's the trend going and, and what do you feel about this med tech sector and investments moving forward? Um, well, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of exciting companies out there. Um, I, I, I really am very excited by a lot of the companies I see. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I, I would like to go a little bit earlier because there's just some really innovative technology. I, I think the, um, the technology that is matched with, with some AI digital health aspects is incredibly exciting. Um, and, and you see that happening across the board. I think that's the real innovation that's occurring. Um, the telehealth, the, the, especially the AI, just, just amazing. Um, so I think that's where, where a lot of the, the excitement is um, in, in the device world right now. Uh, as far as the, the flow of capital, um, there's a fair number of funds that have closed recently, pretty large ones. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of capital for, for entrepreneurs out there. Um, and, uh, you know, we also have to sell ourselves, right? So when we, 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 with entrepreneurs, we have to sell the TBM story and the TBM value proposition, right? And um, I, we enjoy doing that. And I think we have pretty good interactions with, uh, with the entrepreneurs that, that we meet. Um, sometimes when we don't invest, it's just because there isn't a financial match on terms. Um, that's often what it is. But uh, we, we also have to, um, you know, sell ourselves out there too. Well, Alex, I, I really appreciate your time on this one. And I want to say thank you for joining MedTech Money. So this is Alex McLean, partner at TVM Capital. Wonderful to have you on. And this is once again, MedTech Money, where we demystify raising capital. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.